opportunity to share in the walk together. Thank you for this day and for this week. And now open our hearts and minds to the wonder of how you want to work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, let me say a big thank you to the conference and to each of you for the opportunity to be here together. I have thoroughly enjoyed this week. This morning, we're going to load up and head back because I have a Sabbath school appointment tomorrow. Uh, I teach a Sabbath school class. We join the Academy Church there in Calhoun, the Georgia Cumberland Academy Church, because that church was organized with a commitment to minister to the young people in the Academy and disciple them, help them become church leaders. And during the school year, in the worship service, the young people lead out. Now, a pastor preaches, the different people preach. Sometimes kids preach. But uh, they are in leadership roles. And they are being trained to lead out in worship, to be part of the church, of church life, so that when they go back home, they can become leaders in their local congregation. And so Mary and I, when we moved there, made a commitment to join that church because we wanted to invest in the future of the church. So uh, both of us are elders. She oversees the children's ministries and women's ministries. They've asked me to work with the area of discipleship, and I'm a Sabbath school teacher as well. Okay? So thank you. Oh, I forgot to turn this on. We are starting today with page 32. And we are going to skip a bunch of pages. I'll tell you what we're skipping as we get there. Uh, it's more of a detailed thing, but I will touch on all the key principles. Okay? The rest of it, you can follow up on your own. So we're talking about knowing Jesus based on the one key scripture. It's coming on. It just takes a while to warm up. Uh, yeah. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you remember the context, this is Jesus' prayer to his Father. And this is early on in his prayer, verse 3. And he starts out in his prayer, This, Lord, this Father, is life eternal. But they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you said. In other words, if I said it, it would be egotistical. Jesus is saying, Father, it's about us. This is why I came. To show you, them you. I want them to have a better picture. I want them to know who you are. Because this is where eternal life comes from. And as you know by now, when I talk about eternal life, I am not talking about living forever. I'm talking about eternal kingdom life now. And that's part of what we're going to explore today. So let's get into growth and surrender because this is a key element in our journey with Jesus. We need to understand the control problem. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because either it would be confession or lying. But the question is, how many of us have ever struggled with the problem of control? in our homes, in our families, in our, in our walk with God. We all do. I still do. And when that comes up in my relationship with Mary, or our adult children, or the church, or my walk with God, 
I know there's a spiritual problem that I am drifting away from Jesus. Because if He is Lord, the only way He can be Lord of my life is if I surrender to His control, guidance, and presence. So, it is a big issue in the Christian journey. And this surrender to Him is described by Paul as dying daily. That's the level of problem that control is in our lives. There's only one solution. That's dying. How many of you ever heard the term, we have to die to self? How many of you have been trying to do that? How's that working for us? You see, that's actually a false concept. You cannot die to self. You can only join Jesus in His crucifixion. Self has to be crucified. Dying, Self-dying is never suicide. You can't do it to yourself. It happens daily as we surrender to Jesus. And it happens when we accept Jesus as our Savior. That's why Paul in Romans 6, talking about baptism, says, If you have been baptized into Jesus Christ, you have been buried with Him into His death and raised into His life. So he comes down to verse 11, and he says, Count yourself or reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. In verse 14, he says, Sin shall no longer have dominion or control over you, because we're not under sin, under the law, but under grace. In other words, one of our realities when we accept Jesus is sin no longer has control over our lives. Doesn't mean it doesn't have an impact in our lives. Doesn't mean it doesn't harass us, but it can't control us if we are with Jesus. And because He is there, and we have, we can count ourselves dead to sin but alive to God, we can have a whole new sense of reality if we will accept and claim this. And we have the right, according to James, to resist the devil. James 4, 7, 8. Submit yourselves therefore to God. If you are submitted to God, if you are surrendered to God in life in general and in the specific areas of struggle, you have the right and the ability to resist devil, the devil. When you've given that area to God, you can say to the devil, get away from me. You don't belong in my life. I don't belong to you anymore. I belong to Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, be gone. And James says, he will flee. He has no other choice. When our son was a toddler, he would wake up in the middle of the night gasping for breath and struggling. And we thought different issues coming on. And finally, Mary started going in and praying and commanding that the devil be gone and he would, his breathing would relax. But now he has one more thing, James. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Now the Ben Maxson translation says cuddle up to God and he'll cuddle up to you. So when you feel the battle coming on, submit it to God. Resist the devil in Christ's name. But because that, the fact that you have that battle tells us that we have a weak point in our lives where we need more of God. So we draw near to Him, cuddle up to God, and the promises He will cuddle up to us. So we live our life moment by moment in His strength, presence, and power. Again, knowing Jesus. 
So behind every sin is the temptation to be our own God. Every sin. When we say no to God and, to what, and say yes to what we want to do, we're saying, I'm taking God's place in my life. When we understand at that level, it makes what we do far more sinful. Because it makes it clear in our thinking that what we're doing is rejecting the relationship and the power of God in our lives. Because that's what sin does. It breaks the relationship. Control is one of the hardest things in life to give up. We will not grow beyond our level of surrender. It really boils down to the death of self, and that's where my question came. Is it possible to die to self? It is impossible to die to self, but it is a wonder of life transformation when we are crucified with Christ and dead in Christ and alive in Christ. Dead to sin, but alive to God. That's who you are. That's where you and I are when we are walking with Jesus. When we know Him. And as I said the first day, one of the challenges that we have is that we don't understand this different reality and we can't believe it's true. It seems too good to be true. Am I right? You mean I don't have to work hard to be a Christian? If you're working hard to be a Christian... You're doing it on your own. Now, I'm not saying the Christian life isn't going to have struggle. But the struggle is to submit to and walk with Jesus. Because our default mode is, I can do it. Me do it. And sometimes God has to hit, up, hit us up the side of the head with His spiritual two-by-four to get our attention. I know, I've got the spiritual emotional bruises from trying to live it on my own. I'm not saying his two-by-four gives me the bruises. It's my trying to do it on my own that bruises and damages my life. So, let's talk about dealing with surrender. Number one, we have to recognize our need. We have to confront the subtle nuances of self. And it's a lifelong journey. I told you the other day about I got to the point planning my devotional life became so rigid that I fell into salvation or righteousness by devotional life. And my devotional life lost its power and its meaning. Until God used one of his two-by-fours again and says, is it about you and what you plan or is it about me? Now, it's not wrong to have a devotional plan. But if you're trying to be in control of it instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to be in control of it, you've just made it a tool for the devil. Because it becomes about us. So we surrender even our devotional life. My prayer life and, and devotional life changed when I realized I needed more of God than what I was having. Now, up until I became an old man... When I laid my head on the pillow, I went to sleep within a minute or two at the most. And I didn't wake up till the next morning. Now I wake up during the night. Okay? And uh, I, I, somebody told me about Isaiah 50, verse 4. He awakens me to listen as with the ears of the blessed. And so I started praying, Lord, you know how much time I need with you. 
if I need more time, keep me awake tonight, or wake me up during the night, or wake me up, wake me up early. And the first time I prayed that prayer, about two o'clock in the morning, I woke up. Now I wasn't used to doing that. At that point, I was still in my twenties, and and I said, "What's going on?" Listen. Dog wasn't making any noise. Nothing was sounding around the house. I got up, walked around, walked downstairs, checked out the back, in the woods behind us, opened the front door to look around. Everything's peaceful. Well, maybe it's one of the kids was restless, and I go and check on the kids. They're sound asleep. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Why am I awake? Duh. And it suddenly dawned on me, Lord, I prayed this, it worked. So I went back to bed and I lay there in bed and I talked with God for about 45 minutes and fell asleep talking to God. Now when you wake up in the morning, don't you usually start thinking about what you were thinking about when you went to sleep? So if you go to sleep in a communication and communion with God, you're more than likely going to wake up with that. Isn't that a wonderful way to start the day? Okay. So... We look for those nuances of self that show up in our lives. And for me, at that point, it was me trying to control my devotional life. Planning it out. It comes down to accepting Jesus as the only solution to every problem in our lives, our hearts, our families, our church, everything. All of it. There is not an area of our lives as individuals or as families or as groups that cannot be improved by the presence of Jesus Christ that work in our lives. And it doesn't have to be the whole family. If the mother, the sister, the friend, the father starts taking God more seriously, it starts to spread. Why? Because the spiritual relationship with Jesus is contagious. It's stronger than COVID. Just don't get any vaccinations against it. And I have the vaccinations. We're getting ready to take the latest booster. We didn't take it beforehand because we didn't want, us, want it to slow us down for this week. Now, some of you may not like boosters and don't, don't want to take it. You've got a conviction again against the vaccination. That's fine. That's fine. That's between you and the Lord. I don't have a problem with it. But at my age and my condition, I have enough handicaps without having others. I'm in the high-risk category. So, we chose, after prayer and dialogue, we chose to have the vaccination and the booster. And we, when we traveled from California to Calhoun in April of 2020. We didn't stop to eat in any restaurant or fast food place. Everything we ate is what we had in the car that we brought with us. When we stopped to fill up the tank with gas, I had masks on, I had gloves on. When we stopped at the motel at night, we had our own bedding. We came in with gloves on. We took their bedding off. We put our bedding on. We sanitized every surface that we might touch. That room was never so clean. Okay. We, nobody had any idea what it was, 
it was bad. It was terrible. I lost friends to it. But praise God, it was not as bad as we were fearing early on. I mean, some of us thought it was the end of the world. And we got worried. Why didn't we start praising God? I mean, think about it. If that had been the end of the world, isn't that good news? The three angels' messages is the everlasting gospel to proclaim to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. That's the message. The context is the judgment out and the call to worship God. The fall of Babylon and the warning against being part of the beast and the mark of the beast. Aren't those three things good news? The beast is fallen. Babylon is fallen. It doesn't have the power it has had down during the centuries. Isn't that good news? And then comes the call to come out of my people. And if you consider yourself part of God's people, that call, that call is for you and me. Because you don't have to be in some other church to be part of Babylon. Because Babylon can be in us. Does that make sense, folks? So, if we look at things from this relationship with God, it changes our perspective on everything. Now, I don't enjoy the thought of going through the final events until I stop and think they're already going on. It's just eased up on us at a rate where we it caught us unaware. So, Having Jesus means being crucified with Christ, buried into His death, and raised into His life, and this is part of living by faith. It means choosing Jesus on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. It means living by the Spirit. We're going to come back to that. It means lordship, letting God be God. Salvation, and these are some things that I, I wrote, and they're not in your material. If you want to take pictures of it, pull your camera up, take a picture of the screen. I, I, I have this weird, twisted brain. Some of my most profound thoughts come to me in the shower. And then I struggle to remember what I was thinking, and I get out and write it down. Okay. Salvation is not based on your behavior, but on your relationship with Jesus. Your behavior can impact your salvation, but cannot determine it. Okay. We're not saying behavior is not important. But our salvation is not based on our behavior. But it can our behavior can draw us closer to Jesus or draw us away from Jesus. The next one. What you do can help you walk closer with Jesus or lead you away from Him. The next one is your relationship with Jesus or lack thereof will determine your salvation as well as your behavior. Notice it's not your behavior that determines your salvation. It's your relationship that determines your salvation and your behavior. The next one. God does not merely call us to obedience. He calls us to be like Christ. Christ Christ-likeness that reflects His person and character. That's what He calls us to. Obedience on this journey is the result of our relationship with Him and a means of going deeper with Him. 
Does this help you understand how important obedience can be in our lives? We're used to seeing grace versus obedience. If you're concerned about obedience, you're not believing grace. We're going to deal with that. So let's look at Lordship and God's Kingdom. And this is page 33. Jesus is Lord. And recognizing Jesus is Lord is part of our salvation. Only the Holy Spirit can lead us to recognize Jesus is Lord. One day, all will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, it seems to me there's a definite advantage to doing it now rather than then. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord. We're going to be doing it in the city, while those who rejected the relationship with God will be around the city. And asking themselves, what happened? And then their life story is put into the clouds where they can see what decisions they made and the impact of those decisions. God's kingdom is real. Jesus preached about the kingdom of heaven. In fact, when He comes back from the wilderness temptations, He begins proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. When Matthew talks about Jesus first preaching the gospel, it's the gospel of the kingdom. Not the gospel of salvation. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because Jesus' overall master plan for coming to this earth wasn't just about our salvation. It was about restoring the kingdom of God in the universe because God's kingdom was in question. Number three. Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God was near. Then, in Luke chapter 17, He says the kingdom of God it was within us. Now, you can understand that in a plural form, that is within the body of Christ, and you can understand that as within each of us. Lucifer became prince of this world when Adam sinned. Adam yielded the minion of this earth to Lucifer when he chose to eat of that fruit. Jesus came to reclaim this world as His own kingdom. And by the way, that is clear for us, or Job helps us understand that, because when the council comes where the sons of God have come to meet together in heaven, who's there representing this world? Yeah, not Adam. It's who should have been there. Satan is there, and Jesus will call him the prince of this world. Jesus came to reclaim this world as his own kingdom, and he shares his kingdom with us. Remember creation? Shared governance. He gave Adam and Eve dominion. He shared the kingdom of God with Adam and Eve then. And that's what stewardship is all about, is learning to live in the kingdom, managing God's resources, whatever He puts in our lives. Not just financial or physical resources, but our own brains, our bodies, our relationships, our homes, all of that is part of the partnership with God that we call stewardship. This means that when He is Lord in our lives, we have His victory and we share His throne. Ephesians 2.6 We have been raised and seated 
with Jesus in heavenly places. Imagine right now that you are sitting on the throne, the throne of the universe, and the Father is on one side and the Son is on the other side of you. And they've got your, their arms around you. You are sharing God's throne. How's that for you? Talk about cuddling up to God. He says, come on, share my throne. We were created to share God's throne with Him. Not as Lord of the universe, but as managing partners of His resources in our place, wherever we are. Managing partners. I used to teach stewardship as we are partners with God. He's the manager. We are the ones that get it done. I've realized when He gave dominion to Adam and Eve, He gave them the management of the garden and of this world. But He's the one that gets it done. As He empowers our lives. So, our choice is to allow God's kingdom to be real. It starts when we choose to believe it is real. We accept Jesus as Savior. We will never trust Him as Lord until we know Him as Savior. We choose to accept Jesus Christ as Lord. We choose by faith to believe that Christ dwells in us and we allow Him His rightful place on the throne of our lives. You can't share His throne without allowing Him to share your throne. When we have Jesus, we have His kingdom and he, we have life. If Jesus is Lord and He is dwelling within us, aren't we holy ground? Aren't we the kingdom of God? Is not the kingdom of God within us? Brought to us by His presence. So how much power do we have available to us? Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. All the power of the universe is available to you and me to live our daily lives. Now, what if I gave you the name, the number of a safety deposit box in a local bank, and I said, it's yours. Here's the key. Here's the signature card, everything you need. You just need to go in there and turn in the card. They'll let you into the safety deposit room. And here's the key. You open it up, and whatever in there is yours. And then you didn't believe me, so it sat there while you're struggling through life. And then when you pass away, and they're settling your estate, they discover this key and this document, and they go in there, and in there is a million dollars that was available to you the whole time, and you chose to ignore it. Isn't that what we do with God? When we try to live the life on our own, our way, we are blocking all the resources of God that He has to help us. Yeah, mercy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When we have Jesus, we have kingdom, we have life. Okay. His Lordship is relational. It's based on love. It's built on trust. It's empowered by His presence. It demonstrates loyalty to Him. And it produces a life of obedience in our lives. You see how everything we've been talking about is now coming together in a whole package. Number two. 
We must seek Him first. He's got to be first in every, every part of our life. Christ's Lordship is only real as He dwells in us, and we live then to the glory of God. Everything we do is for His glory. That's the stewardship life. The last week in the lesson guide that I'm writing for twenty, the first quarter of 2027, and that's what I'm going to hit. In fact, when we get home from this afternoon, I'm going to get back to work on it. The, the last lesson is entitled, The Final Chapter. It's about eternal stewardship. If He gave Adam and Eve dominion over this world in the garden, what do you think He's going to give us in the new world and the universe made over? Ellen White talks about how we will visit other planets and share our testimony. They've watched it all happen. The Desire of Ages, she actually says that because of sin and redemption, we will be closer to God than if we had never sinned. That's got to frustrate the devil. He tries his best to ruin our relationship with God, and everything he does to us just helps us understand and enjoy God's power and presence even more. I can imagine him saying, can't we do anything right? No. You can't. The devil can't. This is part of what it means to live in this story. So you have this diagram or this storyboard of living lordship. How does it work? Jesus is Lord. Now that term, you notice how I have it written there. All uppercase. Why? Because that's how the English translators of the Old Testament did it to help us understand a confusing thing in the Hebrew language. When the Bible was originally written, there were no verses, there were no chapters, there were no separations between words, and there were no vowels. It was all jammed together in all consonants. Try that with English. No punctuation. As time went by, the rabbis developed a system of taking vowel points. They're not actual letters. You know, Jesus talked about jot and tittle. Those are the vowel points. There were vowel points under the Hebrew letters that helped them understand what was the word there. But the name of God for Yahweh that was given to Moses in Exodus 6 that had never been presented before. You find it in Genesis because Moses is writing Genesis as history, not as current experience. So he puts Yahweh back into it. But Jesus says to Moses, you've known me as God Almighty, but you've never known me as Yahweh, the promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. The God who remembers his covenant. So Yahweh's name is introduced there, and it becomes the most sacred name for God in the entire Jewish history and Jewish thought. It became so sacred that it was never spoken out loud. And some have said that it was so sacred that when the scribe would write the name Yahweh, he would choose a new quill or a new pen. And what they did, and it was never to be pronounced, as I said, and in order to signal to the scribe that you're not to say this name out loud, they took the vowel points for Adonai, which is Lord, and put it 
beneath the consonants for Yahweh. And as I said the other day, the translators of King James created the word Jehovah, trying to put these consonants with those, uh, those vowels. So when it is all caps, it's Yahweh. Okay? Which means He's Lord, uppercase. He is the Creator, He is the Redeemer, and one day all will confess that Jesus is Lord. When Here's the kind of the sequence of how we grow into the Lordship. We start out rejecting Jesus' Lordship. That's our natural default condition as human beings with our sinful nature. We reject it. You don't see Jesus as Lord. You don't know Jesus as Lord. You don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. You don't know or ignore His will. Then as you begin to know a little more, you begin to recognize that He is Lord, but you ignore Him. You reject or ignore His will. You live life on your own. And Lordship is just a theory for you. Yeah, someday everybody, every knee is going to bow. But right now, I'm going to live my life. Now, we don't always articulate it that way, but we live it that way. And every one of us has been there at some time. And every one of us probably has days or times when we live this way, totally in our own strength, even now. Because this is part of where the Lord is. Where, where the struggle is. So, we come to the point where we accept the concept in word. We recognize Jesus as Lord. We may even call Him as Lord, as Lord, but we have little or no obedience. We claim a relationship with Jesus, but our confidence is in claiming Jesus, but have little life transformation. The next step is when we start doing we recognize Jesus as Lord. We call Him Lord. Our focus is on doing the right thing. God wants me to do it. I'm going to do it. It kills me. Or if it destroys my family. And there are dozens, hundreds, thousands of people who are living with the emotional and the spiritual damage of Christian homes where parents did the best they could, but they did it in their own strength. I've just gotten acquainted with an 11-year-old little girl that was accepted into a foster home, and her mother used to punish her by putting her head underwater. When I heard the description of how she was living when she was found and taken by, by Child Protective Service, I couldn't believe that kind of cruelty. I get emotionally mistaken about it. And there are Adventist homes that may be not all that, but where there's emotional abuse or spiritual abuse or sexual abuse. At one point, I was working in a conference, not Carolina conference, where I was dealing with something like 12 different cases of sexual abuse in the conference. Some of them were pastors' wives who had been abused by their pastoral fathers or by an elder in the church when they were children. And they were still struggling with the damage. And you know what's worse than sexual abuse? Spiritual abuse. Because it makes God the perpetrator. And when we in our churches, in the name of God, condemn what our kids are doing, stop running in the sanctuary. This is God's house. That's spiritual abuse. 
Because it's saying you're not good enough for God and you're doing the wrong thing in God's house. That's what the money changers thought about Jesus when he's turning the table for The only thing that's worse than spiritual abuse is when spiritual and sexual abuse are combined. When a spiritual leader in the family and the church is involved in the sexual abuse. Then you have the two deepest levels of the human psyche being abused in the name of God. I've dealt with this over the years time after time. Helping a church work through it. Helping a pastor and his wife work through it. Helping child victims, helping families of child victims process it and work through it. It's an ugly situation. And when I stop and realize that spiritual abuse is worse and unrecognized most of the time, only time I've ever been angry in the pulpit it was one Sabbath morning, a mother said something about how her teenage children had been talked to that morning. And it was the sixth case of obvious spiritual abuse that I'd heard about in two weeks. This was the third Sabbath since I'd started hearing that. And I, started, I got up before my sermon and I said, Folks, you've never seen me angry, but today I'm telling you, I am angry. This is what's happening. I didn't tell the specific case. But our young people, some of you out here, are spiritually abusing our young people. If you don't have a relationship with that young person, you have no right talking to them about anything they're doing. Matthew 18 says, if you see a brother, that means you've got to have a relationship. And if you don't have a relationship with that child or that young person... Don't talk to them. Whatever they're doing, don't talk to them. You have to earn the right to talk to them. And then don't do it the way you've been doing it. This has to stop today. I don't want to hear another comment telling about that kind of action happening in this church. That's not who we are. That's not how we're going to act. I mean, I was angry. You quiet. Some of the parents told me that next week, you should have heard the conversation in our car as we went home with our teenagers. One of them said, Mom, did you tell him? And she'd been the one that told me that day. She said, yeah. Oh. <laughs> you see, when you don't understand lordship, you try to be lord in other people's lives. And this is why... We need to recognize Jesus is Lord. We call Him Lord at this point. But now we focus on doing the right thing. And we think we can earn our acceptance through obedience. And our confidence is in the obedience. But there's little change of heart. Then we come to the surrendering level. This is where you recognize Jesus is Lord. You recognize your helplessness. You accept Jesus as Lord. But too often we're still trying to do our best. Many times when I ask questions, says, Well, I'm trying. Remember the other day? And I told you it was a trap. Trying doesn't work. There is no such thing as trying. You either do or don't. The other day I was trying to move a rock. Actually, it was a big granite headstone where my parents' ashes are 
evidently the mower tire wheel hit it, and it's just off kilter. And that drives me crazy. If something's not square the way it's supposed to be, at times I've gotten up and straightened a picture on somebody else's wall. And then realized what it is. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Not only do I have ADHD, <laughs> I have compulsive obsess- obsessive disorder. I walk into my house and a picture has just tilted two degrees. I can't do anything else till I straighten it up. <laughs> Some of you are with me on that, okay? And, and, and that's what happens when we're trying to do our best because we never get it right. And it's like me trying to shift that huge headstone. It's on another block of granite. And I actually tried. And I said, you're not going to be able to do that. Didn't stop me from trying. Okay. Uh, some of you are chuckling because you can relate to it. You've been there, done that, bought, bought the t-shirt. Okay. Then we come to the final stage of the discipleship growth. This is where we begin to, of the lordship growth. This is where we begin to integrate Christ's lordship into how we live. You trust Jesus as Lord. You recognize your helplessness. You trust Jesus to fulfill his promises. You accept yourself as a new creation. You trust Christ to work in you, to will and to do. And you integrate Christ as Lord in all of life as a journey in Christ's likeness. Lordship is recognizing He is Lord and accepting that He does it. But we have to give Him permission and room in our lives. It is God who works in you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Do you see the problem with trying to obey in our own strength? So, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this one on the kingdom of heaven. I'm just going to touch on it very quickly. In fact, let me go back to it and touch on it a little quicker than that. Notice here, I am. the details are all in there, but what we're talking about is the kingdom of heaven began at creation, sin invaded, and it became the kingdom of this world, with Lucifer as prince of this world. Sin appeared to be dominant. But the good news of the kingdom is that Jesus proclaimed he was restoring. The cross was where Satan was defeated and dethroned. He says, the prince of this world comes and he has, finds nothing in me. Now is the prince of this world condemned or cast down. The cross is where... Lucifer lost his position as Lord of this earth, and Jesus reclaimed it. Do you understand why the temptations in the wilderness were so powerful, and why he was so desperate to to lure Jesus? He knows what's at stake. It's the kingdom of the universe and the kingdom of this world. He's willing to allow God to be kingdom of the universe, but he wants to stay kingdom of being charge of prince of this world. So, he proclaimed the good news, and the kingdom was reestablished, and my favorite one is the reality that the kingdom of God is ours now. I used to say, up until probably a year ago, I said, when I get to the kingdom, I want to do this. And then I realized, with what I was saying, I was denying the reality of the kingdom now. So now I say, when I get to heaven, because I'm in the kingdom now, and the kingdom is me now. 
I don't always act like it. But that doesn't mean that Jesus pulls His kingdom out of me. It's just part of the struggle of growing with Him. Is the kingdom of God yours this morning? What do you want? How do you want to live? Do you want to still be on the throne of your life? Or will you let Him be on the throne of your life and you join Him on His throne? Aren't these concepts incredible? And this is everything that... These are just a little bit of what God says in His Word. Everything I've been sharing with you is in His Word. And most of the concepts and principles of what I've taught these five days, you can find in the little book, Steps to Christ. I was in teaching this early on, and somebody says to me, you know, that's in the book Steps to Christ. And about a little bit later in the class, they said, that's in the book Steps to Christ. And it suddenly dawned on me. I usually read the book Steps to Christ twice a year. And there's a devotional I read at least once a year. My, my Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. How many of you are familiar with Oswald Chambers? If you're not familiar, get it. It's available in digital format, and it's available in the old the old English of World War One time, or an updated English. Using I think it uses usually the NIV for the updated English. Get get the updated version. It's my utmost for his highest. And just recently, by the way, he never wrote a word. He was a teacher in a Bible college in England. And then he was a civilian chaplain to the British Expeditionary Forces in Egypt during the First World War. He was only 45 or 47 when he died. And it was over in Egypt. He came down with appendicitis. And he thought his problem was not as serious as the wounded who were coming back to recover in the hospitals and so on. So he didn't go to the doctor until it was too late. And he died. They did the surgery, but he died with post-surgical complications to appendicitis. His wife, by the way, they were living in a small house built out of blocks with a sand floor. That's the kind of sacrificial life they had. And his wife, who had a dream as a teenager of becoming the secretary, or admin, we would call her administrative assistant to the Prime Minister of England, learned shorthand and polished it where the average expert with shorthand and, and if you're younger than 60 years of old of age you probably don't know what shorthand is okay because now you can dictate you go to the doctor and you dictate dictates his diagnosis and treatment everything else and it transcribes it into words and into a document and then they send you an email saying that's available and it's three hours later that that document is available in some office well that wasn't there the average expert with Shorthand can take shorthand somewhere between 200 to 250 words a minute, which is about the speed most people talk. She developed a speed that went from 350 to 400 words a minute. And when she married him, she started taking shorthand on everything she heard him teach or preach. And then when he died in Egypt, she couldn't, in the middle of the war, she couldn't get back to England, so she stayed there. In fact, before he died, she had started transcribing some of his messages into little leaflets that the soldiers could take back to the front. Okay. 
So when he died, she started transcri- She made it her life ministry to transcribe all those shorthand notes from all the years she sat in on his classes and taking his shorthand. And then she chose what she thought was the best and compiled it in the book, My Utmost for His Highest. His biography is entitled Abandoned to God, and just recently her biography came out, and is simply titled Oswald Chambers' Wife. He called her Biddy. He had a habit of giving all his friends and team members nicknames. And his nickname for his wife was Beloved Disciple. And he shortened it down to B.D. So everybody called her Biddy. Not the negative word that we understand. She's an old Biddy, you know. No, not Beloved Disciple. Powerful devotion. I usually read through that at least once a year. One year before it came out in digital format, I actually transcribed the entire devotional book into a Word document as my part of my devotional life. So I wouldn't have to carry it with me when I traveled around the world. Thank God for Kindles. I have over 3,000 books on my Kindle. I want to read something. Search for that book. It's right there in my hand. Only problem is I can't read as fast on a digital screen as I did on paper. But I share this with you because find something that reinforces your relationship with God. There's a couple of places throughout the year in that devotional where Oswald Chambers says, God gives the gift of discernment for intercession, not for criticism. Now, he says it several different ways, but that's kind of hit me between the eyes several times. So let's move on. Dealing with obedience. And we've dealt with it in different ways. I'm just going to go through this very quickly as a summary of what we've talked about. Salvation is based on God's grace, not our obedience. Obedience is the fruit of salvation as Christ dwells in us. Obedience is a partnership between God's power and our will to choose to obey in His strength. Grace is a gift. Grace provides forgiveness and cleansing. Grace provides new life in Christ. Grace provides power for life and godliness. Grace provides obedience or good works as a gift. In other words, in Paul's words, Ephesians 2.10, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. This is the New Living Translation, and I just love the way they word it. So, obedience, thus, is as much a gift of grace as is salvation. In other words, obedience is part of the package. Stop using salvation as fire insurance and accept the fullness of the gift. For those of you who are here for the first time, what I mean by fire, fire insurance is we've taught of salvation and assurance of salvation that if you say the words that you accept Jesus as Savior, you now have eternal life and you don't have to worry. That's true, but it's not the truth. It's only a little sliver. My favorite, as I told you on the opening day, my favorite description of salvation or verse of salvation is 1 John 5.12. He who has the Son of God has life. And verse 11 helps us understand that when he says life, he's talking about eternal life. 
And he helps us understand that when he talks about eternal life, he's talking about life, all of life. And then in verse 13, he says, These things have I written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. God wants us to live aware that life in Him is ours now. That is our new reality. I am tired of listening to members weep and say, Lord, please give me some kind of peace and assurance. He's already given it to you. Take it. Accept it. It's like a child at Christmas opening the gift and then the next day coming and saying, Daddy, will you give me my Christmas present? If your child came to you every day for six weeks and every day said, would you please give me my, my Christmas, Christmas present? What would you say? Take the thing. It was yours six weeks ago when you opened the package. And I wonder if God ever gets frustrated with us when we refuse to accept the gift and make it our own. We need to unwrap the gift and put it to work. So where does the power for obedience come from? He promises a new heart with, with His Spirit who will produce obedience. In Ezekiel 36, Paul tells us God works in you to will and to do. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus dwells in us and empowers our lives. And the role of obedience. And this is a new concept for me in the last year. The role of obedience is to help align our lives with God. How many of you have the front end of your cars aligned? Why do you do that? Safety? Control? And finances. Because it extends the life of the tires. And the last time I had to buy new tires... I didn't know tires cost that much. I mean, it's not hard to spend $1,000 on four tires. And if you want real good ones, you may pay, you, depending on what kind of car you drive, you may pay 1500 to 2000 for a set of four tires. I have friends that... I know young people have those kind of cars, and, they have, and I wonder why in the world do they keep spinning their tires and burning rubber? Uh, there goes five dollars. <laughs> they haven't paid for it yet. All right. So obedience is a way. The, the reason you align it is to, for safety, for control, and finances. All right. How many of you recently, in the last six months, aligned the front end of your car? Really? Or did you have somebody do it? <laughs> I have these trick questions. I love it because it stops our attention, gets our attention, makes us think. In all my life, I've known one man who did his own alignment, and he did it with a tape measure. And a, and a, a protractor gauge, you know, an angle gauge. He had the knowledge and the ability. And it, it was aligned. One man. All the rest of us don't know what we're doing. We don't have the equipment, so we pay to have somebody else align our lives. Isn't that the way obedience is? Somebody else has to do it for us. In us. Through us. Obedience 
implements the partnership of God, produces the fruit of our relationship with God, reduces the dissonance in our lives, and it will lead, disobedience will lead to a loss of relationship with God. Yes. Which one? Expand your question. That's true. The, the issue was... Give us your first question again. Sin number five, be switching around. Disobedience will lead to loss of relationship with God. And you think it ought to be the loss of relationship will lead to, lead to disobedience. Yes. It's both ways. Yes. So if our lives are aligned with God, we obey. Okay, but if we can't do the obedience, how does that work? Okay, so God does it in us, and Him working in us aligns our lives with Him. He doesn't both fall into place again. Okay, remember the whole package is here. I can't make any statement that says it all. And it sounds like a contradiction because one says one thing, the other says another thing, but they're both true. And so we have to say this and this. And thank you for the comments and the questions because it helped bring that open. So, let's, let's go on. Ellen White says that obedience is a test of discipleship. It is the keeping of the commandments that proves the sincerity of our professions of love. Now, she's saying what, she's not saying the how. And that's one of the things you have to understand that when Ellen White writes, and when some of the Bible writers write, they talk more about the what than the how. And when we turn it into the how, where we're trying to do these things, we've got to keep the Sabbath. Jews never did. With all their rules. With their Sabbath day's journey. They couldn't keep the Sabbath because of their disbelief. If they couldn't, what makes us think that we can? And yet I grew up understanding how important it was to keep the Sabbath. God doesn't want you to keep the Sabbath. He wants you to celebrate the relationship through the Sabbath. we got to run. When the doctrine we accept kills sin in the heart, purifies the soul from defilement, bears fruit unto holiness, we may know that it is the truth of God. And that's why I am so convinced that most of the doctrine we, treat, we teach is not God's truth. Because what we have been teaching as Christians down through the centuries, and as Seventh-day Adventists down through the last 160 years, has not led to a great deal of life transformation. And what's missing is not the information. It's the relationship. 
that makes the information real and doable because he does it in and through us. But we have to make the choice. I had one member kept coming back, but isn't there something I have to do? I said, yeah, die. No, he said, I mean, don't I have to work hard at something? I said, yeah, die. Hardest thing in the world is to die daily because you got your, you have to put yourself totally in Christ's hands. And we don't want to yield control that way. Sure. And again, that's the what, not the how. It points towards the how, but it doesn't really tell us how to do it. Yeah, it is a war. But how do we fight that war? See, most of us are thinking, that's the point. Most of us think we fight a war by working hard to defend ourselves and attack the enemy. Who says fighting a war is done through surrender and yielding? We could spend a whole week on that passage and all the meanings, especially when you deal with strongholds. Folks, I'm going to have to stop the questions right now because I'm next, and I'm going to have to ask your forbearance to go over just five or six minutes. Can we do that? Okay. So, the next quotation uh, continues. This is the rest of that quotation when benevolence, kindness, etc. goes. I'll let you read that. And then there's a quotation from uh, uh, my utmost for his highest. The golden rule of understanding spiritually is not intellect, but obedience. If a man wants scientific knowledge, intellectual curiosity is his guide. But if he wants insight into what Jesus Christ teaches, he can only get it by obedience. In other words, you will not grow beyond your level of obedience. And when we don't trust God to do it in us and through us, we have no level of obedience. Because if we're doing it in our own strength, it's the ultimate rebellion. That's why legalism is the worst kind of sin there is. Because it says, I don't need God, I can do it myself. Okay. So I'll, I'll let you finish reading that. Uh, I need to go on. This, this next diagram, or, or um, storyboard, is the one on discipleship and obedience. It just puts together all the things we've been talking about. Now we're going to jump from there to page 50, and I'm just going to talk to you about that. A few years ago, and I'm talking about seven or eight years ago, Galatians 5.16 started coming to my mind over and over again. And I meditated on that verse for months trying to understand it. It's a very simple concept, Galatians 5.16. If we walk by the Spirit, now my mind just gone by, we will not gratify the desires of our sinful flesh. 
Now think about this. If we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of our sinful flesh. How many of you would love to get away from our sinful flesh and gratify it? So you know why it caught my attention. And I'm thinking, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What does that mean? And, and, and I began to reflect on that. And that's what that page is all about. And then we come to living presence. I skipped the whole section on meditation. That gives you some guidelines on how to do it. I skipped the whole section on prayer, which for me, the best definition of prayer is in Steps to Christ. Prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. It's dialogue. It's not the 911 service. Lord, I need help. Now, God hears that. But if that's all you have in prayer, you don't have much of a relationship. It's also not Amazon shopping. Lord, I need this. I mean, if in your relationship, every time you met your friend, or every time you woke up with your spouse beside you, the spouse says, Honey, I need this today. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. And the whole relationship is on your needs and your wants. What's going to happen to that relationship? friend of mine in college. Talk to me. He says, Ben, what do I do? I said, what are you asking for? She says, so-and-so. He said, so-and-so came to me yesterday and said God had revealed to her that I was to be her husband. He said, what do I do? I said, run. And some of us have run from relationships, haven't we? Broken, abusive relationships. And so, often in those relationships that are broken, that we run from, is an absence of ability to communicate. We never listen to each other, and we never understand each other. And prayer is the listening and talking with a friend who understands and knows us and he wants us to understand and know him. You don't do that in a three-minute quick prayer. Now, some of you are morning people. Some of you are night people. Mary's a morning person. Comes 10 o'clock, the lights are out whether you flip the switch or not. Am I right, Mary? She's back there just kind of smiling. Why are you talking about me? And she asked me, still, after 52 years of marriage, she asked, how can you stay up so late? In the seminary, we had a small child. My papers were written after she went to bed between 10 o'clock at night and 2 o'clock in the morning on old IBM Selectric typewriter before the days of personal computers. I don't have a problem staying up to 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning if I'm doing something productive. But then I like to sleep in a little bit. At least the 7.30 or 8 o'clock. Especially now that I'm retired. And I didn't get to bed till 2 or 3. I wake up and she's cleaned the house. Okay? So dialogue with God. Praying with God. So, walking with the Spirit. I just talked about that, so let me go on. I want to talk about 
practicing the presence of God. How we make this real. 54. Well, before that, let me walk you through page 52. This is a list of 11 incredible promises that are real and dear. It give you a summary of everything I've talked about this week. These are a great list of, of promises to start memorizing if you don't already have them. Powerful tool. And then, page 53, the whole idea about the living presence of God working in us. Uh, there are the promises that are real. Summary of some of the things we've already covered. And now we come on page 54 to practicing God's presence. Some specific things about it. And, and I have to tell you something fascinating here. Mary and discipling children in paradise was working with 2nd, 3rd, and 4th grade. And she'd go and give them Bible studies, baptismal studies. Like that. And she had an empty chair sitting beside her. And one day the kid said, Miss Mary, or Pastor Mary, why is that chair there? And she says, well, this is what I put there sometimes to remind me that Jesus is here with me. That's where he sits. The next week when she came back for the next class, there's three chairs up there. And she says, what's this all about? Well, one's for Jesus, the other one's for the Father, and the other one's for the Holy Spirit. The next week, there's a fourth chair up there. She said, well, I can understand the three, but what's the fourth one? That's for your guardian angel. Children understand these things and integrate it better than we do. Okay, So, the next page, which would be the, the diagram on the disciple in sin, is something you can go through on your own in that whole next section. What I want you to go to now, we're not going to have time to, to deal a lot with the practicing the presence of God. There, there's a little book that was written by a lay brother in a Carmelite monastery back in the 1400s. Brother Andrew, Brother Lawrence, Brother Lawrence, not Brother Andrew, Brother Lawrence, The Practice of the Presence of God. That little book changed my life. Dr. Robert Johnston, professor of systematic theology at Andrews University, had a chapel for the seminary students where he told us about this little book that he had just discovered and started reading. Brother Lawrence, The Practice of the Presence of God. And if you can go on and look for the one that also talks, includes a story of Frank. He's one of the leaders in early literacy movements. And he was a missionary in the Philippines, and he tells the story of him doing the same kind of thing. The whole idea is using your imagination to picture and feel the reality that Jesus is with you. Brother Lawrence, The Practice of the Presence of God. Or, The Practice of the Presence of God is the title. By Brother Lawrence. Frank. Yeah. Laubach or Lubach. Frank Laubach is, the, is the, other, the other one. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Wow, thank you. <laughs> She's the other half of my brain. L-A-U-B-A-U-C-H or B-A-C-H. Frank Laubach. So you can just Google or in Amazon search for practicing the presence of God and look for the one that has both those names in the description. And it, those have both been upgraded to more contemporary English. So, I, I'm going to let you go through the rest of it. I just want the rest of these pages. I want to close 
with um, page 59. I'm not going to go through those points. I just want you to think about and use your imagination. Hebrews tells us to come boldly before the throne of grace. And there's a combination of prayer and meditation of coming into the most holy place that I want to share with you this morning. As we close. Imagine that Jesus came to each of us today, right now. Imagine that... Can we turn the mic up just a little bit? I have problems hearing back there. Imagine that Jesus came to each one of us right now. He said, I want, you to, I want to introduce you to my Father. Will you go with me? Now, I want us to go into meditation and prayer combination. If it helps you to close your eyes, you can do that. Or you can do it with your eyes open. It doesn't make a difference to me. So in our minds and our imaginations, guided by your Word and your Spirit, dear Lord, open our hearts to experience your love more deeply. So we respond to Jesus' invitation and He takes us by the hand. He begins to lead us from this world through space towards heaven. We've never experienced anything like this and it's hard to imagine it. But we can imagine Jesus wanting to introduce us to His Father. We reach heaven. We walk along the shores of the sea of glass and we see the city in front of us. The gates are open wide and we walk through on those streets of gold. We walk through all that housing and we wonder which of those is ours. And Jesus says, don't worry about that. I've got a place for you. Come, let's go see the Father. And we make our way to the river of life and turn up and walk alongside it till we come to the tree of life. And the fruit is so appealing, we, we want to reach out and take one. And Jesus says, not yet. Soon, but not yet. Let's go see the Father. And we walk into the throne room of heaven. And Jesus turns to the Father and says, Father, I want you to meet one of my favorite people in the universe. And he introduces you by name. Imagine what the Father might do or say to welcome you there. And then spend the next little bit of time in your imagination as a prayer telling Him whatever's on your heart and accepting from Him and from the Son all the blessings and realities that we've been talking about this week. Open your heart to Him. For a little while, Jesus touches your elbow and says, it's time to go back. 
And we can understand what Ellen White felt when she had those visions of heaven and didn't want to come back. When we make our way back along the river of life, down the streets of gold, and with Jesus back to this earth in our imagination. But we remember God's message, the message that is out of his heart. Come back anytime you want to. Come boldly. This is where you belong. Lord, thank you. In just a short couple of minutes. But it reminds us how real your love is and our privilege is. Teach us to live from the throne, from the presence of the Father and the Son. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want us now to close with the last page, page 60. There's a list, there's one page in there on the hope of glory that has all these promises. But I want us to go... Well, I'm not getting to it quickly, so let me just walk through this. In closing, I want to invite you to check your identity. It's all there on page 60. What shapes your identity? Who defines who you are? What does God say about you? And who will you choose to allow to define your identity? I want us to close understanding what God says about us. Because our reality changes when we are in Christ and we will continue to grow throughout our lives here on earth. Yet accepting Jesus changes everything. Your first appendix is a document entitled, It Really Is True. Fifty things that happened to you are given to you the moment you accept Jesus. Here's something for a month's worth of devotional life. And that appendices. Number one, God loves and draws us to Him. Number two, we are forgiven and cleansed. We are a new creation. The old has passed away. Everything is made new. Our name is written on the palms of His hands. When we are the apple of God's eye, we are seated on His throne. We have power. We can do all things through Christ. God supplies our needs. Christ dwells in us, and we have victory today. That is your reality today, right now. So we have a choice. We have a choice. We can live on our own. Or we can live in Christ. Knowing Him. This is eternal life. That they might know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Loving Father, thank you for being with us through these days. But more than that, thank you for the relationship you offer to us and what it means to know and walk with you. Be with us as we finish out camp meeting here and as we go our different directions, but help us realize and take home with us the strong realization that you are with us no matter where we go. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless Will.